Welcome to Lit Mag Love, presented by Room Magazine and We Are Lit Writers. I'm Rachel Thompson, writer, editor, and online instructor. In this first season of Lit Mag Love, the podcast, I interview editors from literary journals and share readings from the pages of Lit Mags. My aim is for you, dear writer, to find a Lit Mag where you may have your own words cherished by readers. Hi, Janice. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm so glad that you uh, took the time to join me for, for the interview today. That's great. Yeah, thank you so much for asking me. Thanks. So I'm just going to start by introducing Entropy and, uh, and you, and then we'll launch into the questions. Okay, great. Um, Entropy is a website featuring literary and related non-literary content. They seek to create a space where writers can engage with other writers, can participate in a literary community, and where thinkers can collaborate and share both literary and non-literary ideas. Their site covers topics from video games, graphic novels, interactive literature, science fiction, fantasy, music, film, art, and other topics in addition to literary reviews. Interviews, conversations, and articles on experimental literature, translation, small press practices, and performance. And I'm joined today by Entropy co-founder Janice Lee. Janice is the author of Takis, Daughter, Damnation, Reconsolidation, and The Sky Isn't Blue. She is the editor of the Hashtag Recurrent series at Civil Coping Mechanisms, assistant editor at Fanzine, and serves as executive editor at Entropy. Welcome, Janice. Hi, I'm happy to be here. So I was um, reading your National Poetry Month post from last year where you shared E.E. E. Cummings' Pity This Busy Monster, Men Unkind, as one of the first poems you ever read and that influenced your writing. When did you read this poem, and how did it influence your writing? Uh, yeah, so I read that poem for the first time in Mrs. Hogan's English class in high school, and that was sort of one of my favorite classes in high school for various reasons. Uh, she did a really great job of having us read a lot of literature that I felt like was sort of different than what we had been reading in the canon and other English classes. So we got to read Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, for example, and that was one of the first books I read by a woman of color that really resonated with me. Uh, we also had to bring in songs for one of our projects to present, and we had to analyze them as if they were poems, and I brought in Tupac's changes. And so I remember there was one day we were put into small groups, and our group was assigned the E.E. E. Cummings poem, Pity This Busy Monster, Man and Kind, and the other groups had more traditional poems, maybe like Robert Frost and things like that. And at first, my group was sort of baffled. We had not really seen poetry like this before, right? It didn't rhyme, uh, it wasn't capitalized. It was sort of strange. And then we sort of really dug into it. Uh, we had resources like Google at the time. So we went home and we were researching different words. We looked at all the different words and all the different uh, references to science and to Einstein that he was making and all of the different layers that were sort of embedded in the words and in the language, but also the syntax. And it's also just a really cheeky and funny poem. And that was just the first time I had sat down with any poem for that long and really thought about all of the pieces and layers and how all of that was working together. So that's sort of why it was so influential to me. I just hadn't really thought about poetry in that way before. Oh, wonderful. And it's such a great poem. And I love that you're doing changes in, 
and like deconstructing that in English class. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So is that when you first realized you were a poet or was, was there a time when you realized you're, you were a poet and do you have other family members maybe who inspired you to be an artist? Yeah. Um, so it was sort of my mother who really instilled a love of art and literature in me. Um, she loved art and she loved books. Uh, she would often read to me when I was little and when I was in fourth grade, she challenged me to sort of read every book on the, the classics shelf in the public library. There was this one shelf that sort of had all of the classics and all the canonical books in one place. Um, so before I finished elementary school, I'd already been profoundly influenced and devastated and heartbroken by books like The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Nietzsche and Frankenstein and The Picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, so I was not really a normal child, and I was always sort of sensitive and very empathetic. So art and music and writing made sense to me, um, just this process of observing things and trying to articulate what was seen and what someone was feeling, all of that made sense to me. But my parents sort of, in typical Asian immigrant fashion, wanted me to be a doctor. So I started off initially on a trajectory for going to med school. I, I majored in biology in college. But through various different circumstances, I sort of found my way back to just being in a place where it made sense to me. Um, so using using art and using language and using writing sort of made sense to me. So I don't I don't necessarily consider myself a poet. I think I, I tend to just think of myself just as a writer. Sort of generally, I write in all genres. Um, my friend Juliet Lee just called me the other week genre queer. <laughs> so my work is more to do with narrative and intimacy and just my general relationship to language. And it just has a different lens each time. And this might manifest in a poem or in an essay, but the genre isn't always something that I'm thinking about when I, when I start off. Wonderful. You know, you're, you're actually my second guest who started off at med school and went into writing. Really? How <laughs> she bat from event had the same trajectory. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm wondering what was the first lit mag that you published with? And did you publish something that was genre queer there? And, and what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this question and, and gosh, I, I actually hardly remember my first uh, publication. I was sort of one of those really determined <laughs> overachieving students and that probably carried over from having this like trying to get into med school mentality um, and just my parents. So I just kept sending out work and I kept getting rejections and sometimes acceptances. And so I think that the, the very first publication was just a very random local literary journal in San Diego when I was an undergrad there. And it was, it was something that was run by local poets in the city. And I think it was all online. Um, and I think it was just like a poem like a prose poem. Um, and I don't remember, I don't even know if I still have it. I think I remember sort of more clearly as being an editor for the first time. Um, in undergrad, I started a kind of weird experimental literary journal with two other peers of mine, Nancy Romero and Shoshana Seidman. And it was called Pulp. And we were inspired by some of our teachers like Anna Joy Springer and Ali Liebegat. And we sort of wanted this kind of DIY feel and all of our journals were handmade. One of our journals was this crazy thing where we stapled every page on a different part of the spine so that you had to spin the book in order to flip pages 
pages. And we thought it was really clever because it was supposed to mimic like a record and it was impossible to read, you know, someone would, <laughs> um, but yeah, things like that. Um, so I just remember just, you know, constantly being engaged in wanting in wanting to be part of community and, and wanting to share work. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and you said in an interview on the review review that about entropy that we like to read smart things and share thoughts on books. But we also like to have fun and laugh and play games. And I mean, that playfulness comes through in the way that you stapled that. that uh, <laughs> together too. <laughs> yeah, we thought it was super punk and super clever, but you know. <laughs> and so how has it been going with that intersection of smart and fun for three years now at Entropy? Yeah. Um, I mean, when we started Entropy, we we wanted a space where we could share things and talk about things that writers were interested in, but that weren't necessarily literary. So that's why we have a section for video games and board games. So one of the things that we did when we initially started was a group of us actually started a Dungeons and Dragons session, and we did it over Google Hangouts. And one of the editors wrote up the sessions into these kind of long fictional narratives every time we played. And so like that kind of thing was very important to us. And we've also had a couple year-long collaborations where contributors from the entire community could sign up and, you know, someone would write like a few lines of a poem and then the next person would write the next few lines of the poem next week um, and it would just carry on. And so we've had a few things like that. So it's, it's also just important to us in times that are difficult to just also you know, play and have fun uh, in the collaborations that we get to participate in. I love that idea that definitely in difficult times that it's it's good to be able to play. And it's important to be able to play. It's definitely part of the creative process too, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. What have you learned through editing that informs what you're doing in your own writing? And I've learned a lot of things, but I think the thing that I think about the most, especially recently, is I may have learned more about the capacities for intimacy through editing, both in my writing and just in all of my editorial and publishing work. I'm, I'm interested in asking different questions and I'm interested in the, in the vulnerability of language that allows for an honest attempt at expression and a way to investigate uh, complex questions. So this might be just about life, how we see things differently, just existing as humans together, uh, race, gender, politics, love, depression, relationships, food, I mean, all of these things. And I really do believe that writing exists because language fails. And because language fails, it's why we have things like poetry and art. Um, and that's the exciting part to me. So if, if writing's an art attempt to sort of articulate the inarticulatable, I think it's really important also to make sure that different voices get to be heard and are shared sort of in, in the same form. So, you know, one of the exciting things is I've gotten to meet a lot of new people or hear from people just because of things that I've personally written or pieces that I've published or different books that I've put out. And so writing and editing and publishing are also connected to reading and sharing and dialoguing and thinking together. And all of this is about existing together as part of a larger community. And this larger community is where is where the work actually exists, right? It doesn't exist in a vacuum. And when we write our work at home, you know, that's sort of different than when the work is received out in the world. So this whole process is just 
allows people, I think, to share what they see and to see what others see. And I think, especially especially right now, I think this is also a political act. Even if the work that's being shared isn't political, just, just the fact that we're reading work by different people and encountering works that we wouldn't normally encounter in our everyday. So how different voices, how marginalized voices get to articulate just their everyday reality and how all of these realities can, can sort of coexist. Yeah, I often feel like just the empathy built in writing is a political act. Just being empathetic is politics. Yeah, totally. I mean, just reading something by someone that you wouldn't normally read something by, you know, I mean, just just reading and, and just hearing that point of view, I think is such a political act. Yeah, a lot of what you say resonates with how room exists too, and, and the fact that we're collective and all the voices that we get to read and amplify too is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're just going to take a short break. And then when we're back, I'm going to ask you uh, specifics about submitting and pitching to Entropy. This episode of the podcast Lit Mag Love is brought to you by the course with the ever original name Lit Mag Love. Now, this course is an opportunity for you to get smart, fearless and published. It only opens a couple times per year. But if you wanted to sign up, you would be able to get one free lesson and on the wait list for a nice discount when the course opens again. Now, my students have said things like, as soon as I took Rachel's advice, I started to get acceptance letters in my email. Thank you. That's Anne Filkowski who said that. And Amanda Bishop says, my advice, if you have a chance to learn from Rachel Thompson, you should take it. And those students are part of this amazing course community that we're building that is a wonderful, supportive place for you to discuss publishing and writing, get really strategic around it, and also get that kind of support and, and feedback from your peers so you can keep going and keep, and keep submitting and publishing. You can find out more on litmaglove.com. So I'm back with Janice Lee from Entropy Magazine, or Entropy, Entropy the website. And can you tell me what you look for in submissions and pitches to Entropy? What kind of writing, for example, you want to see more of? and what you'd rather not see again for a long time. So I think of Entropy actually as more of a community and as a magazine. So we, we take submissions and we have features and we have sections and we publish work. So yes, we, we operate very much like, like a magazine. Um, but part of the impetus of its creation was to have a community space for writers. And when we started, many other literary sites that had fulfilled these kinds of community spaces had ended or were winding down or moving on to different projects. Um, and there's already tons of amazing magazines and journals that are publishing super high quality content. And that work is really highly curated and selected. And so Entropy isn't that exactly. And um, we're definitely super proud of what we've published, but we're not aiming to be an elite platform. Um, we want to, you know, not be as gatekeepers as much as possible. It's, it's really meant to be a space for everyone. Um, so all of our editors, we have we have over 40 editors now between the section editors and the contributing editors. They all have direct access to the website and they can schedule and publish content directly. Um, they don't need my approval. Um, so it's a model that's really built on trust and compassion. And we want this to be a safe space and a welcoming one. And all the editors sort of understand that importance for dialogue and collaboration. So, so when we're looking at work, I mean, what we look for is we look for honesty. Uh, we're looking for diversity. We're looking for sensitivity and thoughtfulness and engagement. But really, we're open to almost everything. We keep creating new sections as people create them. 
uh, readers are, are welcome to write to any of the editors or to me at any point and pitch their own ideas for a series to curate or a column to contribute. So a lot of our series come about that way. Just someone just emailing and just saying, hey, can I write like a you know temporary series about football even, you know, things like that. And so what we're, what we're constantly looking for is just different things that might benefit our readers or the community at large. Um, Sort of the only thing that we're not looking for is you know, our pieces that, that propagate hate or are polarizing in any way. Um, but otherwise, we, we try to remain really open-minded about what it is that we publish and how we're serving the community. Oh, that's wonderful. Can you tell me then, so, okay, so you, you have 40 editors who are mm-hmm. scheduling stuff directly. And mm-hmm. it's almost like the sky, you know, the sky's the limit as long as you're not fostering hate or, or polarizing. So how do you then choose what to publish? Like, what, what, how does the selection process actually work then when you're choosing between pieces? So all of our sections have, have different editors. So some of our sections that are bigger, like uh, the reviews or poetry or fiction or nonfiction, they sort of have their own editors. So, so contributors are submitting directly to those editors. Um, each editor has their own sort of process and, and criteria, but we're sort of, you know, on similar pages in terms of, in terms of what we're looking for as a whole. But yeah, each, each editor um, can accept or reject work or they can solicit work. They all have the authority to do that. Um, we also have contributing editors that are curating series and, and they're taking their own submissions. So it's really just, you know, just one-on-one or just you're just emailing an editor anytime something doesn't fit uh, sometimes that might go through people might send it to me but it's really just you know contributors submitting to each of the sections as they sort of see fit great and so I guess if someone submits something and it gets turned down I guess what does that mean (laughs) for them in terms of sorry in terms of what like in terms of maybe should they submit again because you have 40 editors, they should submit to a different section or they for, will they forward it to that other section or? Oh, right. So, so it just sort of, it sort of depends on like why we're turning it down. So sometimes someone's like submitting something very particularly for a certain series. Um, so a series editor might decide that it doesn't fit, but they might suggest that, hey, you know, it doesn't fit in our series, but why don't you try submitting it more broadly to the nonfiction section? Um, they might say that. Um, sometimes it might just be a piece that, pretty sure that we just don't want um, so we wouldn't forward it on but there definitely is sort of that loophole (laughs) where you could email one editor and then another one but uh, I think that only works for pieces that are really falling into multiple genres but for the most part if editors aren't sure about a piece sometimes they'll talk to each other we have a editor's Facebook group and they'll say hey I have this piece that you know I'm not really sure you know I want to be able to accept it but maybe there's these things that are sort of problematic and so sometimes editors will talk to each other sometimes they'll email me so anytime it's not very clear we do have a conversation about it. That's great. And actually, I forgot to ask, where are your editors located? Are they across the country? or They're across the country. Uh, we used to have editors around the world, but I think since then, a lot of them have moved into the U.S. But actually, I think, I think we do have one in China. So yeah, they're, they're sort of just all over. So almost everything is done by email or social media. Once in a while, we'll have a Google Hangout. <laughs> do you play D&D still on the Google Hangouts? We don't because it's it's difficult when we're all in different time zones yeah. <laughs> uh, and we're just all so busy, but I would love to. <laughs> so what should a writer expect when their work is accepted at Entropy? Like, do you do a lot of developmental editing? Is that what the conversation is in the Facebook group or? 
Yeah. Um, so I think because we have so many editors, it, it works a little bit differently than other literary journals. And so it really depends on the editor. And so some of our editors are a little bit more hands-on and others less so. But for the most part, I think it just has to do with practical concerns like time. And so since, since all of our editors are, are volunteers and they're also all working full-time jobs already or several part-time jobs or have families, um, this is like the extra thing that they're we're all doing just because we want to be doing it. So for the most part, most of the editors don't do work uh, that requires any heavy developmental editing. Because we're trying to run it more like a community space and less like a magazine also, we tend to just trust in the work. And so if we like the work, we tend to ask for very few changes, if any, and usually that has to do with clarity or um, if there's any copyright issues or proofreading. And, and so small things like that. For me, when submissions come to me, if it's going to require, you know, like more than 20 minutes of editing, I usually just say no and I'll just usually explain why. Just because I don't have the time to to sit down and edit every piece that goes up because um, we're publishing so much. So, you know, we usually just tell people, I mean, you know, if, if you're happy with it, then send it to us. But if you're looking for feedback from an editor or if you're working to work with an editor on developing it, don't send it to us yet. Yeah, it sounds like, unlike a lot of journals, there's a higher chance maybe of them being published. But yeah, have an opportunity to work with an editor one to one kind of. Yeah, and you know, there's there's opportunities to have conversations with our editors. I think I think we all like to stay in touch with our contributors. A lot of our contributors end up becoming editors later on, or uh, will contribute multiple times. But I think that you know, usually the the kinds of pieces that people are really wanting to submit to us often are things that are more immediate or urgent, just because we have a quicker turnaround. So if if someone has something they're responding to right now now we're a good place for that because we don't have a long editing process that's also good and people also will often share stories that are difficult for them to tell so a lot of personal essays and things like that people have found that they would rather publish those with us just because they found entropy to be a really sort of accommodating and welcome space for that so things like that um, are things that usually people really think about with entropy but yeah because it is a community space it is a good place for a lot of first publications we have published uh, several students, and this was their first place of publication. Teachers that are familiar with us will often suggest entropy to some of their students that they think they have have work that's ready to send to us. So we, we sort of do have a large variety, and it's, you know, we have really accomplished writers who have tons of publications publishing with us, but also first-time writers. That's great. And I think it sounds like people respond as well to the fact that you're so open about the different types of things that you'll publish. And, and I'm just going to quote your mission statement where you say, we appreciate diverse beliefs and perspectives and want to encourage open discussion through a variety of opinions. So you've already spoken to this a little bit and I, I, got, I got a sense of it, but maybe you want to talk a little bit more about how do you work to be inclusive in the diversity of voices that appear on Entropy? So part of this is in sort of the way that we initially created Entropy. So when, when Entropy first started, um, I originally co-founded it with Peter Tiris Liu, and we were sort of seeking to create a new kind of community space. Uh, we wanted it to be built on trust and diversity, and we didn't want it to be a hierarchy. And so at first, uh, one thing that that meant was that we wanted people involved that weren't in our immediate circles. So I actually didn't ask 
any of my closest friends and collaborators or grad school buddies initially. And that was very intentional. Um, and so instead, we sort of used our instincts and we knew about different literary citizens from social media or that we had worked with maybe in the past, just online. And so at AWP in Seattle, we just asked a bunch of them if they wanted to be involved in this project. And we just said, hey, we're going to start this thing called Entropy. Um, you know, do you guys want to be involved? And they said, yes. Peter and I also, by the way, didn't know each other that well. We also had met just online. He had submitted reviews to me when I was the reviews editor at HTML Giant. Uh, and we just immediately trusted each other, but we're also really drawn to the fact that we were really super, so we were different in terms of community. We had different friends and very different aesthetics, different parts of the literary community that we participated in. So that was really important. We were initially asking people to be editors that were also sort of all over the place. So different genres, uh, different communities that they were part of, different geographic regions, different interests. Uh, and that was really important to us because we felt that having that diversity in terms of the editors meant that they would be curating different things that we wouldn't uh, know about um, and they would bring on different contributors. And so just because of that way that we started, you know, since then we've brought on a lot more editors and a lot of my closer friends are involved in it now. But it's honestly probably the first publishing project that I've been involved in, and, and I've worked on a lot. Uh, but we haven't had to actively worry about representation and diversity of voices all the time, whereas other journals I've worked on, we've had issues where you know, there was a, a small literary journal that I ran uh, with a couple of my CalArts buddies, um, with Joe Mulatho and Eric Lindley, and we ran out of nothing. And we were constantly running into this problem where like 90% of our submissions were from men and often from white men and so we just weren't even getting enough submissions from women and people of color and that so that was something that we were constantly having to work and be really active about soliciting work and trying to find new writers but at entropy that really hasn't been a problem a lot of the editors were sort of on the same page about that uh, whenever we're editing or like curating any sort of lists or roundups we try to really take all of that into consideration um, the editors know lots of people and they know different people. So it's been a really smooth and natural process. And I've been really happy about that. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of the upfront work you did paid off in terms of really reaching out to a diversity of people outside of your circle. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, part of it was a risk too. We asked a lot of people that we didn't really know, you know, we were just, we just knew them on social media and we were like, well, this, this person seems really cool. And it seems like they really care about literature. So let's ask them. And I didn't ask any of my closest friends. Uh, neither of us did. So that was sort of, I think, a risk that we took that paid off. Nice. I also wanted to note, I love how you call them literary citizens too. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I asked you um, beforehand if you, if you could think of a piece that you recently published and, and talk about it a little bit and tell us why you published it. Yeah. So the piece that I selected is this essay by Brandon Shimoda. And Brandon Shimoda is just one of my favorite poets. He's just one of those people who's really utterly engaged with everything that he does. He writes the most magnificent emails. And I only met him for the first time in person briefly in Tucson last month, actually. And so this piece uh, we published a few months ago, and I love it for a few reasons. It, it happens to begin with a scene from Satan Tango, which is uh, one of my favorite films. It's directed by the Hungarian director, Belatar. And But also, it sort of exemplifies to me the kind of work that I really love and that we get to publish on Entropy quite easily. And it's, it's an essay, but it's 
also very lyrical. It's sort of in between nonfiction and poetry, and it's personal, but it's observant. It has uh, sort of an immediacy to the writing that seems very present, but also a thoughtfulness that seems very premeditated. And so that's sort of like the type of work that I personally am really excited that we get to publish on Entropy. And it's, you know, we have categories on the website for sort of ease of browsing, but we're not, we don't have to really be bound to genres. We don't have to publish essays that just look a certain way or poems that look a certain way. So anything that's sort of in between genre, anything that's sort of between personal or political, we're happy to publish. We sort of on a related note, we're actually publishing another essay by him tomorrow morning. And it's this paper that he gave at the Thinking Its Presence conference in Tucson where we met for the first time. And, and the essay is sort of hard to describe, but it's really a heartbreaking and necessary piece of writing. It's called the Ghosts of Pearl Harbor on the Pre-War Surveillance of Japanese Immigrants and Japanese Americans and the Production of Terror at the University of Arizona. So you can sort of tell from the title that it encompasses a lots of different things. And that's one of the things that I like about his writing is that he's able to draw sort of these really kind of poetic but also really necessary connections between all of these different elements. We'll post the link to both of the pieces in our show notes for this episode too. Cool. So what is coming up with Entropy? I mean, you talked about what you're publishing tomorrow, but do you have any themed issues or events or special lists coming up, I guess? Yeah, so we have, you know, it's, it's the end of the year already. So we have our best of 2017 lists coming up. And that's something that's sort of grown over time. But we do those lists a little bit differently. We, we want those lists to be representative of the community and not necessarily comprehensive of what, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post has decided are the best books this year. So we initially used to just invite the entire Entropy community, which would include all of our editors and any past contributors to to nominate. This year, we've actually opened it up. So I've actually posted it on social media. And so anyone who's also a reader can participate. And it's a pretty transparent process, but basically anyone can nominate what they think, you know, were their favorite books of poetry and fiction and nonfiction. Um, We also have categories for like TV shows and presses and things like that. And they can email me directly. And every single nomination is basically a vote. And we tally all of those up. And we use that to make our list. So the lists are actually created by everyone. It's not created by just me or a few editors. It's the entire community. So that's something that's sort of coming up and people can send nominations in right now. We've also, we've been partnered with Civil Coping Mechanisms, the press for a while now, which is run by Michael Seidlinger. We also recently joined forces with Writ Large Press, uh, which is sort of an LA-based community press, and that's run by Chiwan Choi, Judas Odin Choi, and Peter Woods. Um, And we formed this entity called The Accomplices. So concerning that, we're going to be announcing some really new and exciting collaborations soon related to sort of blowing up the publishing industry, also perhaps a podcast series. So those are announcements that might be coming up. And we'll just be doing some more collaborative work in the community sort of in general. We're sort of continuing to be thoughtful of the resources that we provide. So like our where to submit lists are probably our most popular feature at Entropy. And I know a lot of people use those. We're continuing to do Trump Watch, which is a sort of branch of Entropy, but it's it's run by myself and a few volunteers. And it's a curation of headlines related to what's happening politically under the Trump administration every single day. So since, since the election, that's been running every single day. And the same volunteers have been running it for every single day. And that's been (laughs) sort of a difficult process. 
And then maybe the last thing uh, that I'll say is that we also just announced today this new writing contest that we're co-sponsoring with Interaction Inc. And it's a privilege and identity abroad narrative writing contest. So the prompt sort of asks for anyone who's traveled abroad to share their experiences on privilege and identity that they've experienced and to just sort of discuss how power dynamics and privilege might manifest in different ways. And so we're, we're sort of excited about this partnership. There's, there's a cash prize, there's no fee. It's great for students who've maybe traveled or studied abroad. So we're hoping that we'll have sort of similar community partnerships in the future. That's just amazing. All, all of the things you're doing, it's making me wonder, well, where does she find all the time to do all these amazing things? <laughs> and I'm just wondering about the, the last one, the, the contest, is that open internationally as well? Yeah, yeah, it's open. It's open to anyone. Um, the link is on our website now. There is a submittable, so anyone can submit. Yeah, great. So it's been so wonderful to talk to you today. Uh, I've learned a lot about entropy and just been really inspired actually by all, all of the different things that you're doing and, and the approach that you take to, to play and even the approach to you know magnifying different voices. It's just so cool. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about it. It's, it's something that I love doing, which is why I make the time to continually do it. So I, I love talking about it. Awesome. Okay, thank you so much. This episode of the podcast Lit Mag Love is brought to you by my course, also called Lit Mag Love. Now, the course only opens a couple times per year, and you can sign up, though, anytime for one free lesson. You'll get on the wait list, and you'll also get a lovely discount when the course opens again. You can do all that at litmaglove.com. Here's your LitMag lowdown for Entropy Magazine. So Entropy is unable to pay writers at this time, so there's no payment. And they publish reviews, including collaborative reviews, video reviews, and non-traditional reviews. They publish interviews, conversations, discussions, roundtables, articles, essays, notes, rants, lists, writings related to or into any of the following categories. So the categories they have are creative nonfiction, lyrical essay, personal essay, literature, experimental writing, small presses, translation, science fiction, fantasy, graphic novels, games, video games, board games, computer games, science, digital, and interactive literature, travel, the paranormal, television, film, music, food, culture, and art. And they are indefinitely open for all of those things. And they don't state a preferred length, but I would suggest looking and seeing what they've published before and engaging that way. So here's what I learned from talking to Janice Lee from Entropy Magazine, that they consider it more of a community than a magazine. It's a community space for writers. So they're not aiming to be an elite platform. It's a great place to submit work that you want to see published really quickly. So if something that's time pressing, or maybe you just want to validate your own writing, get it out there and have people read it. And that would be a great place to submit. They're not doing as many substantive edits. You're not going to work as closely with an editor. There's not a lot of back and forth. They're going to accept pieces that they feel are ready to go. And it is a safe space. They've identified that and a welcoming one. And they're looking for diversity, sensitivity, and thoughtfulness in their submissions. So as a result, they're open to almost everything. And readers, they say, are welcome to talk to any of the editors to pitch an idea for a series. And they're constantly looking for different things that might benefit readers in the community. 
Another thing that I thought was interesting talking with Janice about was that she's really interested in the vulnerability of language and that writing exists because language fails and is a way to articulate the inarticulable. I thought those were great ideas about writing. If you feel some LitMag love for this episode, please tell us in a review on iTunes. When you do, you will automatically be entered for a bi-weekly draw for a subscription to Room Magazine.